you, team. Please take your seats. Jesus is. It's entirely hubristic for me to even suggest that I can tell you who Jesus is. Um, I did suggest to Ben when he uh, posed the title of the sermon to me that actually I could just say that Jesus is inherently unknowable by human beings and so therefore the entire sermon is a single point. Jesus is, Jesus is who he always has been, who he always will be and who he is today. And so on that basis, I hope you have a great week. I've just spent uh, three hours this afternoon and in fact I was standing out in the car park hoping that worship would continue going because the the phone call that I was on uh, kept going for some time Uh, and it was a phone call trying to deal with some very, very complex issues around a project that we're working on. Uh, It's a $5 billion project and we are at a point where no one quite knows how to deal with the engineering issue that we've got and in fact some of the maths that we're trying to deal with is, hasn't actually been properly documented. And I've got three PhDs who are all sitting there trying to work out how to do, use the best knowledge that they have to describe something that is inherently unknowable, yet at some point in the future will be knowable, but you'll only know what it looks like when you've spent the $5 billion. And everyone wants to know what happens and how is it going to look today. So my experience of being in a space where we cannot know all the answers heavily influences who my understanding is and who I, my my relationship with Jesus. I'm entirely comfortable with the fact that there's a whole bunch about Jesus that I can never know. But there's a lot that we can know. And I had actually thought at the start of this to say that the, the title should be Jesus is not. Because in some respects, it's actually easier to describe all the things that he's not than it necessarily is to say that all the things that he is. And there's a tendency at times when we start talking about him to narrow our identity or our understanding of Jesus down to only those things that we can comprehend and understand. And yet when we accept that there'll be a bunch of things we don't understand, we start to allow ourselves to have a greater appreciation of the majesty of who King Jesus actually is. So, that's the introduction. Now, right here I have a, a glass of water. Um, and, and many of you would be very used to talking about people who are optimists and pessimists. And some of you would look at that glass of water and say that glass is half full. And some of you would look at it and say it's half empty. And both of them are entirely valid viewpoints. They are equally logically correct, they're equally physically correct, they're equally emotionally correct. You can feel entirely valid about your decision to say that that glass is either half full or half empty. Now, as an engineer, I would look at that glass and say, that glass is twice as big as it needs to be. Um, (laughs) But nonetheless, we can, depending on our perspective, form entirely different views as to what is actually in that glass. And that's really the context that I want to introduce into tonight. And we're going to talk about something called cognitive bias. Now, this is a fairly theoretical term. It's a term that psychologists use. It's a term that is used by leadership experts to describe a way of thinking. The formal definition of it is that a cognitive bias is a systematic pattern of deviation from the normal rationality and judgment. 
individuals create their own subjective social reality from their perception of the input. An individual's construction of social reality, not the objective input, may dictate their behaviour in the social world. Thus, cognitive biases may sometimes lead to perceptual distortion, inaccurate judgement and a logical interpretation, or what is broadly called irrationality. Now, there's a lot of information in that little definition. And that particular definition is actually a very widely regarded and understood definition as to what a cognitive bias is. Basically, it means that we as humans have a natural tendency to ignore reality and to determine what we're going to believe about something based upon what, we've, what we already believe or what we feel. So as humans, our tendency is to not necessarily look at something and say, objectively, this is the way something is. It's actually to sit there and say, well, because of the way I feel or because of the way I've experienced something before, I will choose to believe it in this way. That's a cognitive bias. It's not a negative. It's something that we all have. And anyone who says they don't have a cognitive bias has just identified the number one cognitive bias in their life. The reality is, is we all have these biases and they appear in all sorts of different ways. If you are someone who already didn't like vaccines, your natural inclination when hearing about the COVID vaccine would be to say, oh, I'm not sure about it. If, on the other hand, you are someone who believes that vaccines are good and something's to be done, your natural inclination would be to say, well, I need to get the COVID vaccine. Now, in both of those circumstances, those judgments are formed largely based upon our previous experience rather than going and looking at the source material or the research. And in fact, it's worse than that, and we see this in social media, the entirety of Facebook, and uh, Facebook in particular, but all of the social media platforms are engineered to support our cognitive biases. They give us the information, not that we should get, but they give us the information that they know that we will naturally feel ourselves drawn to. So it reinforces those biases that we already have. And so if you're a person who wants to see everyone in the nation vaccine, your news feed will be filled up with stories about how important it is to get vaccinated. And if you're someone who has qualms or concerns or has previously expressed a view about vaccination, your news feed will come up and tell you, here's all the reasons why you shouldn't get vaccinated. To be clear, this sermon has nothing to do with whether or not you should or shouldn't get vaccinated, although I am familiarly obliged to tell you that you should all get vaccinated. If Rachel asks, that was the official word that I gave you tonight. But the reality is, is Facebook and those mediums play to our cognitive biases. They will determine if whether or not, based on things you've looked at, things you've read, things you've liked, they will know whether you're the sort of person who will look at that glass and say it's half full or it's half empty, and then determine to in provide information to you based on that. That makes it really difficult for us to then understand how do we engage in a conversation about who Jesus is. Because if we accept the premise that as humans we are necessarily flawed in our capacity to 
take information in and to think about it and to process it and to understand it, and that's what the cognitive biases are, are, are reinforcing, then how on earth are we going to get our heads around something like Jesus? One of the, uh, or two quotes that I really find fascinating, uh, one is by Carl Sagan, and he's a, he was a, a um, cosmologist and he wrote extensively around space, in the, particularly in the 90s, and he wrote a book called The Pale Blue Dot. And he was famous for the fact that he'd actually managed to convince NASA to take a photo of the Earth by the Voyager spacecraft. It was actually one of the first photos that was ever transmitted in colour back to, uh, to Earth. And it was a photo of Earth from the furthest away that's ever been taken. In fact, it was one of the first photos of Earth as an external observer to it. And it's this grainy shot when you can see light coming through the dust and there's this tiny little dot in it and it, it's just a pale blue dot in space. And he wrote an entire book about it and one of his core quotes out of that book was, who are we? We find that we live on an insignificant planet of a humdrum star lost in a galaxy tucked away in some forgotten corner of a universe in which there are more galaxies than people. So he looked at that pale blue dot and saw insignificance. In fact, he saw in it an identity that said, well, because of that, God must not exist. We, we, we are so insignificant that we, there, there must not be a God. We must be a mistake, in the, a blip in the cosmological history of the universe because we're the only ones that are there. And he saw that and saw insignificance. But C.S. Lewis was able to look into space and he wrote at times when he was reading about some um, uh, cosmological work that was being done and astronomy work that was being done in the 40s, he wrote this, if the whole universe has no meaning, we should have never found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there was no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know it was dark. Dark would be without meaning. So here we have two preeminent thinkers of the 20th century who could both stand out in their, on their porch in the evening and look up into the cosmos and see the great inky blackness of, our, of the galaxies, of the universe and the, of space and forming two entirely different interpretations. One, looking at it and say, how small and how insignificant are we, therefore we are nothing. And the other to look into it and say, the mere fact that I can look into it and, and draw meaning from it says that there must be meaning and therefore I must, I must be of value to something. Two insanely intelligent people looking into the same dark sky that many of us have looked into and in fact thousands of generations before us have sat out and looked into that same sky and they formed two very, very different views about what the world actually is and what it means to be human. So our experience fundamentally determines what we will believe and how we will respond to new information. So what then, in that context, can we say who, about who Jesus is. What then do we actually do with that? 
And how then can we actually explain to each other who Jesus is in a way that we will actually understand and get over our cognitive biases? Now, the fortunate thing is, because we're created by God and He understands who we are and He understands fundamentally our weaknesses, He already thought about this. And so, what we can start to understand is that perhaps, just perhaps, if God is all knowing and all seeing and all being, that maybe when we look to the Bible, we can see the full conception of Jesus rather than just the bits that we tend to like. Now, you would all know, I'm sure, that when you're doing your Bible study, and if you're in a filthy mood and feel great righteous anger about the ills in the world, then you go to the verses in the Bible where Jesus goes into the temple and upturns the table in wild anger, because that makes us feel good to know that Jesus was angry. It gives us that sense that we, our righteous anger has a place and it belongs and it's something we can engage with. And if we're isolated and we're at home on Facebook and we're having arguments with people and we know we're right and know that everyone else is wrong and know that everyone won't listen to us, we go to the verse in the Bible where we find Jesus saying that there will be division and that sons will not talk to their fathers and mothers will not talk to their daughters. And we go, see, division is there and my division from the rest of the world is okay because I am right and everyone else is wrong. And we've found the verse that validates our feeling about the world. If we find something that we don't like, something that we don't understand or that we struggle to get our head around, we find the verses that describe the things that Jesus hated. And then we go, aha, well, Jesus hated it, so therefore I'm right. And it validates our sense of belonging and identity because it makes us feel somehow equivalent to Jesus because we know what is right and wrong in the same way that Jesus did and we know what to hate and to not hate. But once again, it's our cognitive biases kicking in. And then some of us will refer to Jesus reaching out to the children because we all love children. Come here, meek and mild children. It validates the position of every kid's pastor in the church. Sorry, Emily, I can't see you. To, to be able to say, well, Jesus said, come here, you little children. And it validates our position once again. And there's those of us who will say, well, the very first miracle that Jesus did was filling the water to wine, so partying's not all bad because that validates my position and when I'm having a drink with some friends, I'm just doing God's work. <laughs> we are uniquely capable at finding the verses that validate our particular biases and our particular perspective in the world. But the good thing is that God knew that Jesus was too complex to be wrapped up or to constrain to any one perspective. He was too complex to be wrapped up in a particular argument about a, 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 a narrow position on social welfare or social ideology around th how things should be. In fact, he's too complex to be wrapped up in any one book of the Bible. And what we find 
when we go through the Bible, that there's all these different areas that describe God, describe the history of the Jewish people, describe the future through Revelation, letters to the churches, social issues that are discussed and analysed within the frameworks of the Bible. There's poetry in Song of Solomon, the Psalms, the the wailing and gnashing of teeth of the, the Jews through Exodus. But all of these things are wrapped up when you look at them in relatively short sections of Scripture. But when it comes to describing Jesus, we have all of the prophecies of the Old Testament and then we have four Gospels. Because God knew that the full description of and the full manifestation of who Jesus was and who Jesus is and who Jesus will be could not be wrapped up in just a single set of words. And so we're going to unpack that a little bit over the next little while to understand, well, what does that actually mean? Now, we haven't actually got the verses up on the the screen, but I'd like you to, if you've got your Bible, you've got them on your phone, to actually look at it, because part of the process here is actually stepping through and see how these verses stack up and how they're ordered and how they're arranged. I'm sure you'll all recall that the Gospels go Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, so we're going to work through in that order. The very first verse, Matthew 1.1, This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and Abraham. And so what's God telling us in that very first voice? What verse? What's he actually setting up for in the whole rest of Matthew? What he's setting us up for is to tell you Jesus is part of a family. He's part of a lineage and Faith in Jesus brings you into that lineage. That may not seem important, but in a society that was defined by familial origins, by hierarchy, by ancestry, by understanding where you sat in the family tree, to be able to tell someone you have a place in that, in that tree, in that, that family, is a really, really significant point. And so when we come to faith in Jesus, one of the most profound outcomes for us is that we come into a family that has been foredestined by God. That's number one. Like, that's the starting point for the description of Jesus. Faith in Jesus brings us back into a familial relationship, to a family relationship with God, our Father. It connects us with with His cultural heritage but more in te- importantly, it connects us, connects us with the idea of, ch- of God's people and Jesus as King. That's our starting point in Matthew. And some people will find that an easy place to start. But some people might find that really awkward. Some people might find it a comforting point if they've not been in a family. Other people might find that they've spent an entire life trying to escape family... And the idea of saying, well, now you've got to join a new one is actually a big barrier. But the point is, we can't escape that the first point is that Jesus brings us into a family. So then we jump on to Mark. Mark 1.1. This is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. It began just as the prophet had written. And what we find in Mark is a description of Jesus as a fulfiller of prophecy and the doer of miracles. 
He was someone who had been foredestined in writings past that all the Jews of the day would have known about or would have understood. They would have heard it preached to them in in the, the synagogue that this Messiah would come. And Mark tells us about the fulfillment of those prophecies, but more significantly says that he will be here to solve your problems. He will be here to, to heal you, to bring life to the death, to bring movement to the lame. He will bring health to the ill. So if you're a person who is naturally drawn to a desire to understand Jesus as a healer, or Jesus as a fulfillment of miraculous prophecy, then Mark's the book you go to, because it sets out how Jesus fulfills all of these areas. It gives us a first insight to Jesus in the concept of the supernatural. We then move to Luke. Luke 1.1, and I'll read through to verse end of verse 4. Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used the eyewitness reports having been circulating amongst us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honourable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. Now, this takes us a different tack. So, we, we first of all, having Matthew saying, Jesus is part of a family and we can count back generation to generation. We can link him in to this entire history. We can link him back in to the, the Torah and to the Old Testament. Then we have Mark who's saying, Jesus is here to heal you and he's going to be a fulfilled prophecy. He's going to bring miracles. And then we have the eyewitness news section of the Bible. Luke turning up going, I've heard all of this good stuff. And in fact, Theophilus has paid Luke to go out and research it. This is as close to a doctoral thesis on what actually happened that we're going to find in the Bible. Luke went out and did a detailed analysis. He did interview, he did eyewitness testimonies, he did interviews, he broke down what was being said and what was being told to other people, built it up and then said, here is what happened. So if you are a person who is drawn to history or drawn to the certainty of science and fact and all the rest of it, Luke's dealing it up for you. He's laid it out to say, this is exactly what happened. You can believe it. I've tested it. I've, I've pushed it. It's right. Luke fundamentally wanted us to appreciate the historicity of Jesus. And for the avoidance of doubt, and it does repeatedly come up, whatever else you may believe about Jesus, we must believe that Jesus was. He, we must believe that he existed because all of the science and all of the archaeology and all the research actually supports that assertion. So it's not a, not a debate to have with people about whether or not Jesus was. He was. The question that we'd like to discuss is whether he still is and that is then leads us into John. Because to say that Jesus was, which is really what Luke was doing, it was looking into the, old, to the past and it was analysing, it was documenting, it was writing down what happened. John takes us a different direction. And John wants to actually say, well, actually, Jesus is more than just a family and he's doing more than just the miracles that he does and he's more than just the fact that he existed. 
Jesus was and is and is to come. He brings a new idea to Jesus, which is that Jesus is God. And we see this in the first verses of John again. John, we're going to read through John 1 through 5. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him and nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created and His life brought life to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. What a powerful new insight into who Jesus was because we suddenly find out that it's not just that He was, He, he was, we find out that He has been there for all eternity. He is with us now and He will be with us into the future because the darkness can never extinguish it. Everything that has been created was created within the vision of Jesus because He stood at the right hand of God and in fact was with God and what the Word was God. A really confusing, confusing set of concepts for us to get our head around, the idea of man being God and God as man and then the Holy Spirit and how that all ties together. I'm not going to try and unpack all of that tonight other than to note that what God is telling us here is that God, when in coming into relationship with Jesus, you come into a relationship with Him as a family, you come into a relationship with Him as a healer, you come into a relationship with Him as someone who was real and you come into a relationship with who is someone who was with Him at the start and will be with Him at the end and who will be there through every step of the, the history of the world. Jesus wanted us to understand that Jesus was with God and was God. Well, John wanted us to understand that. So the challenge we have as individuals is that we tend, whether we like it or not, to show our cognitive biases even when we're describing to each other who we believe Jesus is. Every one of you will tell, will, will in different ways, tell us which is your favourite translation of the Bible. Some people say, oh, I like the Amplified. Some people will say they like the Amplified just because they get to say more words, which possibly could be accused of an accusation made of me. Um, but some people say, I like the King James because I like the these and the thous and the smotes and the, all the old language that goes along with it. And some people will say, well, I, like, I just like reading other message because it just makes me feel so full and I just love the words and it brings me such delight. Some people say, no, I like the passion because it's so modern and it just gives me deep spiritual insight to it. Some people like, no, I like the NIV because lots of scholars have spent lots of time researching that. But our cognitive biases will draw us to one translation versus another and in the end, all it's doing is linking us to individuals who've worked on it rather than understanding deeply what's actually being said through the Word. And you'll also do it when you talk about your favourite verses. And if someone's getting up to do an offering speech or offering sort of message or getting up to do a short thing, we all know the passages that you go back to because they're familiar and comforting. And there isn't a worship leader in the world who doesn't know how to go to the Psalms just to rip one of those out because they're really easy to pull out and, and talk about them. And everyone likes the Psalms because it was written by a worship leader and it validates the worship leader's concerns that they're not understood and appreciated enough so you have to understand that 
that... That's all right, we'll get to the senior pastor in a little while. <laughs> but we, we tend to go to the, the verses and the phrases that, are, that suit us the best because it, it validates our own position. And I know for me that my natural tendency is to go to Luke and Acts and those, those books that I can then sort of research and understand. I like Chronicles and Numbers and Kings because you can go back and you can dive in and understand, well, what was happening. You can cross-reference it to archaeological sources. But it's still a very narrow understanding of who God is and who Jesus is because it's limiting my understanding to the physical. If it wasn't something that could be measured, then it limits my... I, I, I sort of won't be drawn to it and then I don't get the full appreciation of it. But equally, when we just spend our time talking about miracles or we're just talking about Matthew because it links it into the Old Testament, we shortchange God because we don't get a full understanding of who Jesus is. One of my, one of my favourite non-Christian quotes to use in, in sermons and to use in this type of teaching is actually a quote from Homer Simpson. Um, and he was, it was an episode where he'd got marooned on a desert island and he was made, he was seen uh, to be a king on this desert island with the natives who were there. Incredibly, like so much of The Simpsons, incredibly inappropriate when you think about it within the context of our understanding of political correctness today. But, but in the middle of it, he doesn't really know what to do. They're wanting to, to worship a god. And so he goes and gets all these people around him and they build this cathedral out of timber. And he stands there in front of it and says, I don't know much about God, but I think we've built a pretty nice cage for him. And although said flippantly in a cartoon, there's such enormous depth of wisdom in those words, or in, not so much wisdom, but insight. Because how often do we look at the words of Jesus is, or who, when someone asks us, well, who is Jesus? And we constrain Jesus to the cage that we put him in by our own experiences and our own biases. We lock him down into something that we can understand that makes us feel comfortable and validates our experiences and our understandings, but doesn't necessarily move it in a way that someone else will be able to understand or appreciate. And just as we're saying it, and we could be saying it with the full appreciation of who we believe Jesus is, we may be speaking about this Jesus who loves me, who's, who's healed me, who's protected me. We may be talking about the Jesus who was, was someone who existed and here's all the research. And the person we're talking to is hearing me say that the cup is half full and all they're hearing is that the cup is half empty. And they're completely misinterpreting our understanding and our description of who Jesus is. So when we... When we then ask ourselves the question of who Jesus is, and we're going to finish up reasonably shortly, which I know and appreciate is a relatively unusual experience. <laughs> I think I've done everyone except Sam. Um, but it takes a tool to know one, so... We... Which is, I've got them all. I think I've done them all, so we can finish up shortly. But we have to be really, really clear in our minds. We have to be really certain in our minds. 
we have to actually have done the review, the internal review in our understanding of our relationship with Christ, such that we can properly share it with other people. And if you're here tonight and you've never heard of Jesus or you've never come into relationship with Jesus, the, the message that I want you to take home is that your relationship will be, with Jesus will be with the same Jesus I have and I have a relationship with, but your relationship will be different and that's okay. It's absolutely okay for us to have different relationships with Jesus because Jesus uniquely was created to have a relationship with each one of us individually and not to be mandated by anyone from a stage or from a platform. In fact, the entire way of the Protestant belief comes from the idea that you personally are created to have a relationship with Jesus and your relationship with Jesus will be unique to you. Now, like so many things in life, that comes with a little barb, which is while it will be unique to you, we always have to test ourselves to make sure that we're not ignoring our proper understanding of who Jesus is and, and challenging ourselves as we, go, as we build into that relationship with Jesus. So, Jesus is the complete and whole, is complete and whole. He is of God and of man. He is family and makes us part of his family. He is a healer and he's a fulfiller of prophecy. He is a real part of history and he's God incarnate from the beginning and to the end. The challenge I'm going to put to each of you tonight is whether or not we are able to accept the true image of Christ as described through all of the Word, not just the parts that we like, not just the verses that we manage to pull out because we appreciate it, but are we able to appreciate all of who Christ is? Or are we going to engage with an opaque and shadowy version, the, the Jesus that you can sort of look through a piece of glass and see an outline, but you can't quite touch it or feel it? Are we going to allow our own biases and our own self-centeredness to absorb a version of Jesus that not, is not the real Jesus? And are we going to allow other people to lose out in life by not having the opportunity to have a relationship with Jesus because we present such a narrow ver version of what it is? I said at the start, sometimes it's easier to describe the things that Jesus is not rather than all the things that he is. And I won't go through a full list of those. But one thing I will say is that very often when people tell you that Jesus is or isn't something, they're actually being driven by their own tendency to observe the part of Jesus that they want. Not because it's necessarily right, because that's the part that suits where they sit. Our cognitive biases are real. It's part of who we are. It's part of how we're made, and, and God knows that. And it's okay to, be, to, to have a preference to be drawn to certain areas. But it's not okay for us to limit who God is because of the limitations of our own mind.